What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. It's your host, Chris, and we have another great conversation with a fantastic author and researcher, and her book is amazing. But before we get started, make sure, if you're not yet, I know a lot of you are, but if you're not yet, make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter because I'm working on some new stuff and I'll be posting it over there. So you want to make sure you don't miss anything, but I also, you know, update you on new episodes and all that stuff. But I was also talking with somebody today. I was recording an episode and here's the thing. Here's the thing, everybody. I come from the YouTube world where this is beautiful comment section. Well, it's not beautiful depending on uh, whether or not you make people angry, but anyways, you can get feedback, right? But I, I enjoy when you guys follow me on Instagram and Twitter, and we could talk about, you know, episodes because I am just flying blind. I don't know what you like, what you don't like if you're not following. So I love that kind of interaction. So there's a multitude of reasons why you should be following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. And my DMs are open. Message me anytime. We'll have a chat. All right. But anyways, today's guest is Vanessa Bonds. All right. So she has a brand new book out called You Have More Influence Than You Think. And she is a social psychology researcher. And her story of how she kind of fell into this area of research on influence is really interesting. And we talk about that a bit in this episode. But so many of us, like I know a lot of you struggle with, uh, you know, anxiety, like my social anxiety used to be insane and it was difficult to ask for things or even have conversations and all that. And a lot of stuff from her book really, you know, shines a light on that and helps us realize, you know, that, that we, we can ask for things and, you know, good ways to go about it and all that. And her and I discussed that a little bit in this conversation as well as how to handle rejection a little bit better because that's one of the reasons we don't ask because we fear we have this definitely fear of rejection so we talk about that too but kind of to start this episode off as well we talk about you know the topic of consent and power dynamics because something that's really important is you know when when people don't understand that they have influence because of their status or their power. And Vanessa actually helps me break down the difference between status and power. So there's a lot of important topics in this conversation, as well as things that can help you out in your daily life. So I absolutely loved her book. It's, it's different and the research she does is awesome. So yeah, I hope you enjoy this conversation and make sure you head down to the description, make sure you're following Vanessa over on Twitter and Instagram. I've linked that down below as well as her new book. You have more influence than you think. All right. And by the way, if you're new to the podcast, make sure you're following the podcast too, whether on Apple, Spotify, wherever you're listening to this, make sure you're following. All right. But yeah, without further ado, here's my conversation with Professor Vanessa Bones about her brand new book, You Have More Influence Than You Think. All right. Hello, Vanessa. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? I am fantastic and excited to be talking about your new book. I loved it. And you sent me an early copy of it too. So I appreciate that. So for those who have yet to be introduced to you, can you first give us a little bit of uh, your background? Like, what do you do? What do you research? All that kind of stuff. Sure. So I am an experimental social psychologist and I research social influence, but in a kind of different way than a lot of other people research it. So it's not just about what it takes to get people to do things or the different, you know, uh, sort of techniques that are more impactful versus less. What I look at is people's intuitions about mm. what's going to be effective and whether they're going to be influential. And so I run studies where I basically have my participants make guesses about what they think is going to happen and mm. basically tell us their intuitions about influence. And then we test them and see what's actually influential and what happens. So I, I have a couple of questions because I love me some social psychology. So, so one of the first things, because I, I just, I, that's one of the things I love about this podcast is like getting to know, like what makes people interested because I'm forever curious. What made you interested in this 
specific area of social psychology, like influence, like is it something like you noticed or like did the, like a professor like say something you're like, oh, that sounds interesting. Like what, what led you down this, this path? It was definitely sort of an unintended consequence of a survey study I was doing with a professor in grad school where I had to collect data by going to Penn Station and asking people to fill out this questionnaire. Uh, and it was so awful. And I still am like traumatized to go down to Penn Station. I still get that like panic feeling that I used to get every day when yeah, I would yeah, have to go down there. <laughs> um, and basically when I did this, uh, our study didn't work as many studies do. And I don't really remember that much about the details of it. But when Frank Flynn, the professor I was working with, and I were looking at the data, one of the first things you look at is like, oh, how many people agreed to do the survey? And it, the compliance rates were pretty high. And it was much higher than either of us would have expected. And especially given how sort of upsetting it is to ask and how anxiety provoking, it was mm -hmm. kind of a disconnect between like, why is it so upsetting if so many people are mm. agreeing? And so we thought maybe this is actually the discovery. Maybe this is more interesting than what we were originally going to test. Like would other people basically have a similar experience where they're surprised at how many people agree? And so that's really how I stumbled onto this specific domain. And then it's just kind of, you know, had legs ever since. Yeah, I know. That's interesting. I believe you, you discussed that in the book a little bit too, and kind of like what you, what you noticed from it. And so since you've been doing this research for a while now, here's the other question I want to ask you, right? Like I, I read on all sorts of different topics, psychology and social psychology, one of my absolute favorites, but here's what I've noticed. Cause I also look at like, you know, I also read a bunch of like science books and all sorts of stuff. It seems like studies in your realm get a lot of crap. All right. Like they're like, you know, there's all, there's like obviously like a replication crisis and all that. So I'm curious. You know, as somebody who does this all day, every day, like, how do we, how do we know that the findings are accurate and that, you know, you were controlling correctly and all that? How do we narrow it down to eliminate some of the, some of the stuff people have issues with? You know what I mean? Like, what do you do to make sure that it's as accurate as possible? Yeah. And I think that's such a great question. And I wish more people would ask questions like that when they talk nice. about social psychology <laughs> research. I think it's so important. We've all seen how important that is. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, I've spent my life not just doing these kinds of studies, but lots of other kinds of studies as well. And what I've found is that there are studies that, you know, you get a finding and you try to replicate it and it doesn't replicate or, you know, you just find yourself sort of chasing this tiny little effect over and over, trying to hope it's going to show up, which is where you wind up with problems in science, right? Where you keep mm -hmm. being motivated to find a certain effect. And, you know, there's, we can go on and on about the replication crisis and where it comes from. But one thing is, you know, people only published uh, the findings that actually worked and they yeah. put, you know, all the ones that don't work in a file drawer. And when you know that actually you're not replicating it all these other times, then it's like, is that a real effect? So I, I know that experience and at least with my studies, I, it is such a different experience. And that's one of the reasons that I sort of went all in with these studies once we mm. started to do them, because so what happened is, you know, we tried to basically replicate the experience I had at Penn Station by bringing people into the lab and having them do the same thing I did. So they, the very first study, we gave them questionnaires to get people to fill out. And they went out and they asked strangers to fill out questionnaires. And before they went, we had them guess how many people will do it. And then they actually kept track of the rates of compliance. And mm. people basically thought they'd be rejected twice as often as they actually were. Um, and so that was such a big effect the very first time we saw it. It wasn't even just a big effect. It was the kind of effect you see on people's faces, which like never happens. Mm. Um, usually, you know, you're waiting to see the data and you're like, I wonder if this worked. And you, you're looking at like two scales and to see if like the 0.75 difference is like significant, you know, mm -hmm. in this case, it was like people before they went out were terrified and anxious and would ask us questions about like, you know, what if I can't do it? What if nobody says yes? What if it takes longer than it's supposed to? And then they would come back like, it would take them less time than they expected. They would bound back into the lab all happy, like, oh my gosh, that was so much easier. And so like we could see it on their faces before we even looked at the data. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then of course, like the hallmark is that then we have now 
replicated it so many times. The last time I counted, it was like 15,000 uh, requests that our participants had made. And we just see it again and again and again. It's really the most robust effect I've found in my career. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And it, yeah, it's like one of the things I love about the book, it's it's something that I am regularly teaching my son now. So I'm hoping you can kind of explain this a little bit better than I am because it is purely anecdotal. But anyways, here's a, here's a story real quick, Vanessa. So growing up, my dad has like these weird sayings. I think a lot of our dad's parents do, right? My dad always said this, okay? He always said, if you don't ask, the answer's already no, all right? And my dad said a lot of things, and this is one thing that I've kept with me. I am very introverted. I used to struggle a lot with social anxiety, and that's where I can kind of relate with the book. And like when you tell these stories about people being like nervous asking for something, but I've seen this over and over that if I just ask, like the results are crazy. Like this podcast, for example, here's a great example. I just started this back in May. All right. The amount of authors who have come on big, small experts and just random It's like, it is insane. And, you know, I use this, this experience to teach my son, like, listen, if you don't ask, the answer is no, you know what I mean? And, and yeah, so this is something you talk a little bit about in the book. I don't know if you have, if you can cite, you know, one of your specific studies, but I, I don't know. I think that's really helpful for people who have this kind of fear. Cause we, I think we all have a fear of rejection, right? So, so can you talk a little bit about like, I don't know. Is that like one of the big takeaways? Is that like the first step is just asking? Yes, that is a huge takeaway. I absolutely love that insight from your dad. It is exactly the kind of thing that I try to get across. Um, and I haven't heard that before, so I love it. Use it. Use and, it all you want, Vanessa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd say for the first half of the book, and then later we can talk about the second half where it's like, here's some caveats. But yes, I yeah. think like the first half is definitely the asking is the first step. It's that we tend to negotiate ourselves down before we even ask, right? Either by not asking, we convince ourselves. It's like we have the conversation in our head before we actually have it with the other person. And in that conversation, they say no, which is like the worst thing, right? And so we just don't bother asking or we kind of negotiate down and we ask for less because we think we'll get less pushback. And mm. yeah, the first sort of takeaway is definitely that that is counterproductive, right? That people are more likely to say yes to us than we think. Um, mm -hmm. And we should, you know, try it out and ask people instead of having that conversation in our head. And we'd probably get it wrong if we tried to guess. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, like when you, when you, you know, ask your, your people, you know, what, what do they expect, right? What do they think is going to happen? And, and yeah, so, you know, I, I, I do, I want to talk about power dynamics in a little bit because I, have so many questions and some of them dive into the philosophical, but anyways, you have entire sections on like, like people are less likely to say no than we think. But here's, here's my question. Like as somebody for a long time, hated rejection, all sorts of stuff. And, you know, uh, I think you even talk about your experience a little bit in this, like what's, what's something we could do to kind of like overcome that? Because I'm sure you get no's, right? The influence thing doesn't work a hundred percent of the time, but like, is there like, do you psych yourself up? Do you say, Hey, it's not a big deal. Or like, what, what, what's your advice around like getting over the no? Yeah. And that's, that is an important sort of point is that I think we're so focused on the no that I tend to be the, try to be like the counter argument and focus on the let the yes, that like, Oh, but people, more people are going to say yes to you than you think. But that doesn't mean everyone's going to say yes. As you mm -hmm. said, you know, in our studies, even, you know, up to half of people will at times say no. And mm -hmm. I'd say one thing that we find in our research that makes it difficult is that when we get a no, we think that it's because of us mm. or, you know, our relationship with the person. We tend to attribute it to these more sort of uh, permanent internal things. And in fact, most of the time, no's are circumstantial. They're mm -hmm. because someone doesn't have time or they're making some trade off or, you know, they just can't do it right then. And so I think sort of understanding, first of all, that people aren't judging us as harshly as we think when we ask um, is a really important sort of strategy, right? That it's not, if you get a no, it's not about you necessarily. It's not about what you're asking for. It's not about the relationship, right? It's mostly circumstantial. And then we also have studies showing that we think if we get a no, 
because of all those things, because of those attributions, we think that if we ask that same person for something else, they'd mm-hmm. say no again. But they're actually more likely to say yes because they feel so bad about saying no the first time. Yeah. And so sort of just understanding uh, sort of the sort of temporariness of those dynamics, I think, can be helpful. And knowing that if you ask someone else, you're likely to get a yes. Yeah. So that's interesting. Uh, have you're, you're familiar with like the Good Samaritan study. Have you heard about that one? Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's great too, because I, for a while, I started reading all these books on just like how context and circumstances, situations matter. There's actually a book called Situations Matter. But, you know, uh, for those listening who aren't familiar with the Good Samaritan one, they, they found that people were more likely to help somebody who was like in pain if they weren't in a hurry. Right. So you have all these good people, but if they're in a hurry, if they're in a rush, they might not help. So even like, you know, your students or whoever going out and taking a survey, if they're running into people who are in a hurry or, you know, Penn Station, they might miss, you know, their their transportation. So I, I, I love that too, because that's something that I try to do. Uh, I tr- like, even if I have to lie to myself, right. I'm like, Hey, maybe this is happening in their life. Maybe, you know, for example, I reach out to authors. I get a ton of no's. I get a ton of no's. I get no responses. And I'm like, hey, maybe they're busy. Hey, maybe it's this. Because like you said, I think we we take it too personally. We're very focused on ourselves. But I, when you mentioned that they're more likely to say yes the second time, I've seen that a lot. I've had a lot of authors, for example, say no, right? And then they say yes. And I'm like, nice. So I need some advice. I'm going to ask you for random advice throughout this. Okay. Like one thing, where's the, where's the line with persistence? Cause I am a persistent mofo. I've had people say yes on like the fifth time, but I don't want to be annoying. So help me not be annoying when I'm <laughs> persistent. Where's the balance? That's a really good question. And, you know, I wish that I had an answer. We've only ever had people ask for two things and I don't know of other research like Bob Cialdini has also had like he's got door in the face studies and foot in the door studies, these things where it's like you have one request and a follow up. But for the most part, I really I am only aware of studies where people ask twice. And I definitely think, you know, there's going to be diminishing returns at some point. Right. If you keep asking. One of the things that I talk about is one thing that makes it easier to say no is having a script and being prepared. And mm-hmm. I think that if you become a person who now you're just like, you're constantly popping up in my email or you're constantly asking me, now I've said no to you. I've gotten used to it. I have my script prepared for how I say no to Chris, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think you don't want um, that to happen. You don't want it to become automatized where they kind of just don't even view you as a person anymore, really. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So. So yeah, if you ever need uh, numbers on it, I could tell you about it. Hey, I reached, I'll, I'll keep a spreadsheet. How many times I reached out here. So here's what I'm wondering too. I don't know if there's any research around, I'll call it, maybe there's a scientific term, but I'll call it a silent no. So let me throw out a scenario for you, Vanessa. Uh, so I've had authors, people I've reached out to, right? I reached out to them two, three times. I try to spread it out weeks or whatever. And I have literally had people, I've literally had people say, Oh my God, Chris, I am so sorry. Your email went to jump. Like there's a best-selling author who I'm uh, following up with this week. She's like, your email, like I was just like, oh, she's way too big to ever come on here, right? And she's like, it went to my spam mail. I would love to come on, da 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 right? So that has happened. So when I'm thinking about, oh, it's not me, these things, and I think about these possible scenarios, right? But then there's other people where they just straight up ignore you. Here's a quick rant, Vanessa. That is so rude. I can take no's, but when you're just ignoring, like, like, cause now I don't know. Now I don't know if they got lost in spam. I don't know if I reached out on Twitter and you get a bajillion notifications. Some people have their notifications off. So anyways, anyways, going back to that original question, is there any research around like the silent no? Like how do I, because it's not a, uh, an automated no anymore. It's a, their no is not even there. Does that make sense? Like, what do we do? What do we, what do we do with, okay, here's a better example that more people can relate to guy. Cause later we'll talk about power dynamics. Guy asks a girl out, no response. Guy asks a girl out, no response. Right. Fourth time. She's like, Hey, you're being creepy. What if, what if, 
like, what if she never saw that email or message or something like that? You see what I mean? So what do we do in those scenarios? I don't want to be creepy, but I also don't know if it got lost. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so you're really talking about ghosting, right? Which is, (laughs) which is a problem in some contexts and then also almost like self-preservation in other contexts. So for example, uh, there was recently an article in the Wall Street Journal about people who apply for jobs and then basically never get a rejection. They weren't chosen, but they never get the rejection. They were basically just ghosted by this potential employer, which is super offensive and upsetting. And yeah, I think, I think a lot of it does come from this. We're we're super aware of how hard it is to be rejected. Like we really know that that hurts. And I think we forget that rejecting people is really hard too. And I think a lot of it does come from the pain of rejecting somebody that actually putting into words like I'm rejecting you, I'm pushing you away, I'm potentially damaging the relationship in some way, I'm insinuating that you're not good enough, like that doesn't feel good. And Mm -hmm. so when we can avoid it, we do or we forget, you know, that someone else is over there waiting for a response. Um, And so it's hard to know, you know, if something went in spam versus not, that's, you know, more, I feel like of a technical problem. I'm not exactly sure how to address that. Yeah. Uh, but I definitely think that we all need to get better with rejection. And that doesn't just mean being rejected. That means being able to reject people in mm. kind, but clear ways. Um, so I think that's kind of on both people to some yeah. extent. Yeah. This is another reason I love conversations because it helps me snap out of my self-centered point of view. Cause I'm like, you jerk, right? Like when somebody doesn't like answer me, but, uh, you know, for example, because, uh, you know, in the book, you talk about power dynamics and a lot of stuff where like, you know, men flirting or, you know, uh, things in the workplace and all that. And I never want to come across as a creepy guy. Like the second, like if I'm, uh, reaching out to like a female author, you know what I mean? But like, you know, I have a girlfriend who I love, I've been with for almost five years now and we live together and all this. And people may not know that about me because it's not something I'm like always talking about. Sometimes I tweet like, Hey, we're watching a movie or whatever. But like, I don't want to come across creeping to like a female author. Like that author I mentioned, right? Where it went to spam, it's a female author. So I don't want to be creepy. But the other thing that I, I personally need to remember is I am much better with rejection than a lot of people. So like maybe that person has had a recent bad experience. So they don't want to do that rejection. So they just kind of go. So, so yeah. So anybody out here who's single and thinking about that, maybe they've had recent bad experiences, but like you said, I think we all need to get better at maybe at rejecting and also accepting rejection. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I do. And I think so. I mentioned that, you know, there's a couple of reasons people might ghost. And one could be that, you know, it's a situation where they really should get better at rejecting someone. But there's also, as I mentioned, like self-preservation. So some people ghost and in some of the contexts you're mentioning, like, you know, if I'm being hit on by a coworker who keeps emailing me Mm. or even my boss, you know, being kind of deaf to that and not responding and pretending I am not hearing it could be a self-preservation tactic because I don't want to damage that relationship by openly uh. rejecting them, right? And so that's where I think you have to kind of read the contextual cues. And like mm-hmm. if it's in the workplace, for example, and you've asked a colleague out, you know, assume they got it. And yeah. I would not keep pushing in a situation like that because they might be ghosting you because it's a really awkward situation and they don't, you know, they're concerned about even their job or, you know, promotions and things like that. You don't really know what they're concerned about. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I guess like, cause I, I, yeah, I, 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 I want to touch on that. Like now I get like the power dynamics thing, because this happens a lot. And I think kind of what, you know, even I'm talking about, I think there's a whole new layer with like digital influence and rejection and stuff. But so in the book, it, it kind of leads up and starts talking about these power dynamics and here's, here's where I struggle, right? So there's a lot to do with power dynamics. I get it. So for example, I've, I've recognized this since high school. When I was a freshman, I noticed it because I was a freshman. I'm like, Oh, what up freshman ladies? Yeah. But then any senior asks, uh, you know, a younger girl out like, Oh, well they got a car and stuff. So I'm like, Hey, you're using your, your status as a, you know, whatever. So you try to teach people about that in this book. So I guess what I'll start with this is what, what's kind of the, the 
goal of it? Like when you're talking about this research, is it, is it to educate like employers or is it more to educate like the lower, the, the person lower in the power dynamic? Does that kind of make sense? Like, who do you hope for this to reach and really communicate this to, or is it even like HR departments? I don't, I don't know. I'm curious when you were writing this part or researching it. I think it's all of the above. I mean, I think sort of a lot of it, it is the action is coming from the high power person where mm -hmm. they're the one sort of unintentionally potentially putting pressure on somebody. So what I talk about is that when we're in positions of power, and I do want to just take a, a sort of a sideline for a second that mm -hmm. status and power are different. So when I say power, I'm talking about like, I control your resources. When you said the senior guys like have mm. a fancy car or whatever, and they get all the girls, that's more about status. So that's not like I control your resources and there, therefore you feel like you can't say no to me. That's more like, oh, someone thinks I have high status. And so therefore I'm sort of more desirable in their mm -hmm. eyes. Right. And so I focus more on the power side. And when someone actually has control over your, over your resources, so a boss, for example, who controls your pay and promotions and, you know, clients you might get assigned to, whatever it is. And in those cases, when we're in positions of power over somebody else, it's harder for people to say no to us because they don't want to risk damaging that relationship mm -hmm. because that's an important relationship for them. But at the same time, that is exactly when we are least able to understand how our words impact another person. We don't take their perspective as much. You know, we feel like we can just do what we want more when we're in positions mm -hmm. of power. And so we assume other people can as well. And so I definitely want to sort of make sure that people are aware of those dynamics when they're in power, mm -hmm. but also just kind of explain it for other people as well and for people outside of those kinds of situations. I think one problem is that when we see these situations happen in the workplace, we have our own stereotypes and judgments that we make of the people involved, and mm -hmm. they can often be negative to the lower power person. I mean, one example I use, I use the case of like Monica Lewinsky and how yeah. she was like torn apart in this way, you know? Um, and I think similar dynamics on a smaller scale can happen in the workplace as well. And so it's kind of giving people some additional context around situations like that as well. Mm. Um, and also HR. I mean, one of the things I talk about is questions that we ask in interviews that people feel obligated oh, yeah. to answer that they might, you know, might not be the best questions to be asking. Uh, and that's something also that, you know, HR professionals could benefit from. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I... That, that whole part was great too. Just, you know, questions about, you know, um, marital status, do they have kids and, and all that, but yeah. And, and you just blew my brain up a little bit. So, so we're separating power and status. All right. And I'm not sure how to phrase this. So hopefully I make sense. How much different are they like, so I guess on an ethical scale right boss asking employee out that is very blatant like you control their employment possible raises and promotions and stuff clear power but i think and correct me if, if i'm wrong i think in the book you discuss the situation with like uh aziz ansari did was that mentioned in okay cool mm -hmm. so that that was purely a status situation right and i think more of us more more people like on average are gonna be dealing with status situations rather than power, even though the power thing happens all the time, all the time, right? So are there different levels in your kind of view, like ethically, like power is worse than using status because I see the Aziz situation as much different than an employer. And what is your suggestion or what are you trying to get across when you talk about those separately? Yeah, that's an interesting question because I actually hadn't thought of the Aziz example in terms of status. But now that you say that, of course, you know, he would be someone who had higher status. Um, I more used that example as an example of a situation where someone doesn't have power over someone and we still underestimate our influence because we underestimate how hard it is for someone to say no to us. So in that case, you know, he didn't have control over somebody's resources, right? He liked the way a boss would. So he didn't have a position of power over this woman who felt pressured, uh, like he was pressuring her to sleep with him and felt really uncomfortable the next day. But the idea there was more to make him sort of an everyman because 
lots of people are in this experience where you can't really tell if someone else is enthusiastically agreeing with something that you've asked them to do or whether they just feel sort of pressure to go along with it. And mm. in that case, he was really misreading the the context, thinking that there was more enthusiasm where she was yeah. feeling more pressured. Yeah, I think, and I, I, you know, this is why one of the reasons I hope people read your book, because you dive into a lot of these nuances. So, so me, one of the reasons that I'm curious, like, you know, uh, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm locked down for the foreseeable future. So I don't got to worry about that single life, but I have a 12 year old son, you know, in December, he'll be 13 high school's coming up. So I am trying to teach the best ways for him to not be, uh, you know, for a lack of better words, a D bag, right. Uh, you know, when he's out there in the dating world. So, you know, I'm, I, I want to teach him how to navigate this and all that, but status is something that I, I, you know, I, two things that I'm always thinking about are like status and like signaling and you know, all that. I recently had Will store on, I don't know if you've checked out his new book. No, it's only in the UK, but it's called the status game. When it comes out, check it out. Right. So when it comes to status and you, and you touch on some of these nuances in the book, like I'll lay out this scenario. So I originally came from the YouTube world. I was doing like mental health and addiction recovery. And something I saw a lot in there was, you know, YouTubers hooking up with fans, right? But this isn't new. This is something, you know, in the last 10 years. But if you go back, you can go back to just whenever celebrities started, right? Uh, uh, you know, uh, actors and actresses and musicians. So when we're talking about status, when we're talking about signaling, uh, these you know, these, these musicians or whoever, if they hook up with fans, they have a higher status, not necessarily power, but at the same time, there are people, men, women, you know, whoever, who want to sleep with a person of higher status, because then that signals to others, look, I'm desired by this person of high status. So I see it as, as a screwed up kind of transaction, right? But I'm curious your thoughts on that. Like, should, should a celebrity never hook up with a fan and should fans never want to hook up with a celebrity because there's so much that could be, you know, misunderstood where, oh, I don't want to say no, but I feel pressured because what if they, what if they're like, Hey, I'll do this. Cause I'm going to get some status and some signaling out of it. So that that's what I want to hear about. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I am less concerned about status uh, mm. because it's, you know, I think it reflects more of just day-to-day -day romantic interactions and people who, you know, there's certain people, even if they're not a celebrity that, you know, we're just like obsessed with or, you know, just fall madly in love with and would do anything for that person. Yeah. Right. And so those dynamics, I think, you know, they, they go to the extreme when it's someone hooking up with a celebrity potentially, mm -hmm. but there's just not the same thing where if I, if the relationship goes bad in the end, that now I might lose my job or be seen as someone who can't, you know, climb up in my career or something like that. So it's the big concern for me with power is mostly about the repercussions that happen for the lower power person that the higher power person is often protected from. Yeah. And with status, I mean, you could be sort of chewed up in the tabloids if you, you know, yeah. hooked up with a, you know, celebrity, but I think that's less likely and the consequences are probably shorter lived than in a power situation. Mm. So I definitely, I think more that that's more similar to just everyday dynamics and the fact that we all should be cognizant when we are, you know, getting romantic with someone of how enthusiastic they are about, you know, certain things. And part of it is just, you know, our own behavior and the extent to which we put pressure on people. Right. Yeah. And whether we can read that. Yeah. I, I, that's one thing I really hope people take away from your book because you know, especially since like the Me Too movement and stuff, and there's so many conversations about consent and different sides of the argument and stuff like that. But I hope people realize, like like we were talking about, they're more likely to say yes the second time and things like that. And there need to be, you know, conversations because one of the arguments, one of the arguments that people have is like, 
oh, there's something spontaneous and you're, you're, there's too much and it's very robotic and stuff like that. But I, I think like that's kind of going to an extreme. Like you could talk and have conversations and make sure the other person, you know, is comfortable and, you know, and all these other things. And I hope, you know, research like yours in the book gets kind of out there. Like, like I said, like, this is something I, I, I'm concerned about with my own son. Like, I don't want him being the, one of those people who's just ignorant to the, these, these kind of facts and, and all of that. So, um, when it, so when it comes to, you know, the power thing, like in the workplace, is this, cause I, I, I'm not 1000% sure maybe you are like with HR and stuff like that. Like, um, there's been recent topics about, uh, uh, professors and students, maybe that's a better route to go because I'm a little bit more well-versed. Like, is that, is this kind of research something that needs to be taken into consideration? Because technically a professor has some power if that student is in their class, but there's even conversations about professors and students who aren't in their class. So what, what can we take from your research or what do you think your research should be used for when they're having these conversations about professor-student relationships? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think it applies. And interestingly, you know, I'm at Cornell and it was just a year or two ago that we actually banned relationships between professors and undergraduate students, which is kind of wild to me that for so long that wasn't the case. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's this idea that two mutually consenting adults can really just make decisions for themselves and they can recognize if there's a problematic power dynamic going on. Uh, but one of the things that I talk about in the book is that if you're the person in high power, you actually have these psychological biases that come with being in a position of power that mean that you miss a lot of cues mm. that come from the other person. So you don't recognize when you might be crossing the line as much. And on the other hand, when you're in the position of low power, we often think like, if that ever happened, I would speak up and I would say something, right? But when it actually, when push comes to shove, many of us don't because the situation when we're really in it feels so different than when it's all just hypothetical. And we often think, when we think about these relationships, we often think about the beginning of the relationship, right? Like two people coming together super enthusiastically, like look at these mutually consenting adults, why can't they make their own decision? But often, you know, most of these relationships don't last forever. Of course, mm, some do, yeah. and, you know, people don't want me to take that part away, but like, you know, a lot of them end. And what happens is all that stuff between that initial enthusiastic, like getting together period and everything that follows right now, all of a sudden there's a power dynamic and you can never really be sure if someone's con consenting to things because they really want to, or because of that power dynamic. And then no. if someone doesn't want to be in that relationship anymore, there is a, an issue where one person's going to suffer greater consequences than the other. Right. And so yeah. one person is simply less free to leave that relationship in the end because of that. Yeah. And and it's interesting too. what I was just thinking about, cause I, I, you know, I worked at a, a dual diagnosis uh, rehab for a while and there's very strict ethical guidelines. Like my girlfriend, for example, she's currently in her master's program for social work and she's, you know, she's going through that and, and yeah, there's, you know, uh, you know, in therapy, they teach you about like transference and stuff and, you know, patients like falling in love with their therapists and, and all that. So there are very strict guidelines. And it's interesting too, because yeah, that, that could play a role. And like you mentioned, you know, the person, you know, with, with the power might miss these signals or cues or not even be aware, but in the mental health field, like you are trained. <laughs> so there's not really an excuse, but I think that's important. I think when I was working at the rehab, I think it was like two years. Like it had to be like two years post-treatment, something like that. So you have this long kind of time frame. So what what are your, I guess, quick question, what are your thoughts about that? Like somebody graduates college. Two years later, they reconnect with a professor. Is that fair game? Power gone? I think so. I mean, again, if we're talking about power, it's really about control over resources. And then there's no chance of grading. I mean, there's maybe some things with like letters of recommendation and things uh, like that that you can find somebody else. So I that definitely doesn't concern me as much as someone who is immediately in, in school. Yeah. 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 Got it. Okay, cool. Yeah. I was curious about that. Interesting. So, so 
off the topic of like relationships and stuff, which I was like dying to talk, because I'm, I'm curious because it's always in the conversation, but more so like the first half of the book, it's really talking like to the average person, right? And what I would love without spoiling the book, because I need people to go buy it as soon as possible. One of the things that I found most interesting is the influence we have in an audience. Like, I was like, what? So can you talk just a little bit about what your research, like, if I'm in a crowd of a hundred people, what kind of influence do I, do I have over who's on stage speaking or, or whatever? What, what have you found in that realm? Yeah. And I'm excited to shift a little, cause as important as the sort of me too side is, it's definitely not the whole book. And there's so much like yeah. happy story that I yeah, don't want to yeah. get lost. Yeah. So, yeah. So we talked a little bit about, you know, when you ask people for things and the sort of pressure that they feel to say yes. But there are all these other ways that I talk about that we influence people in ways we don't realize. And one, as you said, is this power of actually being in the audience. And mm -hmm. when we think about, you know, a situation where someone's on stage and has a microphone or is up on the podium, if you looked at that room, we tend to think, oh, that's the person with all the influence. Yeah. But if you actually talk to those people and anyone who's ever sort of done a presentation just in front of a group of people, they're looking out at that audience, hoping that audience likes them, right? We're people too when we're yeah. in front of the stage holding the mic. And so we're paying a lot of attention to the faces in the audience, who's in the audience, you know, how they're responding. And so we tend to sort of shape our message to meet what the audience seems to be responding to. Mm. I talk about stand-up comedians as like the extreme of this, right? They throw out whole bits based on how audiences are responding or really develop ones based on reactions that they get. And so just by being in the audience, by reacting, we can sort of shape the way messages are framed to us because people are framing them in ways that they think will appeal to us and then responding to our response. And it's a much more dynamic sort of situation than we tend to uh, give being in the audience credit for. Yeah, I think I think I really enjoyed that part because, and I, I'm sure you you have this experience. I'm curious if it's kind of uh, shaped you just realizing this. But I, I uh, when I was at the rehab, I did a lot of groups right in front of people, and I I fed off people, I read off people, right? Like you know, in the addiction space, you're sometimes talking about very serious topics such as overdose and death and trauma and all sorts of stuff. And, you know, sometimes I, you know, I would try to shift it and make it lighthearted and, you know, get people engaged, but I'm reading every single person. Right. And, you know, I might have 50 people who are very engaged. And then there's like randomly five people who are like zoned out or giving me like a dirty look. And I'm questioning, like, did I touch on something? Am I offending somebody? And like, we're for those who have not presented, I don't think they realize that like we are, it's already bad enough just being on stage in front of all these people, but you're also looking at every single person. And when I actually, when I started my YouTube channel to talk about mental health and stuff, it was so hard because I'm just sitting there with a camera and I couldn't read anybody. So, you know, I, I'm curious, like you being, you know, you, you kind of knowing about this and being part of it, like, do you kind of, have you kind of shifted the way that you participate in an audience? Do you try to <laughs> make more like, you know, uh, movements or like gestures to interact with them? Like how, how's that shifted? Oh my God. I, I really have. And I love your comment about, you know, shifting to YouTube because it reminds me of when all these comedians like late night talks show hosts, right. They shifted from having an audience oh, and they were so yeah. lost when COVID started. They were like yeah. so lost because they were like, I don't know if anyone's responding. And you think they just like, they're just supposed to be funny. They have their bits, but like, they don't know if they're actually landing and it's just, you know, awful yeah. to not have that feedback. Yeah. So I, I teach, um, a lecture, uh, of 200 students in like, you know, a big lecture hall. Yeah. And I'm sure that they think that I can't see them because it's like, you know, a big lecture hall, but I can see all of their faces and you always find that person who is like smiling and nodding and you're just like, oh my God, I love you. You smiling, nodding person who right. like actually makes me feel like I can go on. And then I'll talk to people after the class and all the people who had like those blank stares, they'll have great questions after. They weren't like not listening 
but you just couldn't read them necessarily. And so I try to be the person in an audience now who like smiles and nods to show yeah. that I'm actually listening to like encourage the the speaker because I know what that means to to be the speaker and to see that person. Yeah, yeah, I I, I definitely think so too. And it's interesting. I think it was uh maybe adam grant recently or somebody like they they were talking about like oh uh you know we should let's because since there's a lot of online schooling right like my girlfriend even still 90 percent of her classes are online i think there's one that she goes down to unlv here in vegas but anyways they were talking about like students should be allowed to have their cameras off but also like i i've seen professors chime in like i go insane if all your cameras are off and like even if you just have like some of the most active students who are okay with that and there has to be this kind of balance because i can only imagine um what it's been like for you know for professors uh or even like my son was doing online schooling for sixth grade so did, for cornell did did you guys have to kind of go through that did you get the late night host experience where you you shifted to online and people were turning their cameras off and you're going insane like how how was that yeah, Cornell did shift to online uh, last year. I was on sabbatical, so I was lucky that I didn't mm. have to teach a whole class like that, although I gave a couple of guest lectures and it definitely changes things. Like you just you, you just start to hear the sound of your own voice droning away and like you you lose your place more because you like don't see you're just not sort of having that back and forth as much. So I would try, you know, to pause and like get people to ask questions, but it just, it is a very different experience than actually being present with other people. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's nuts. I, yeah, I could, I could only imagine. Like it took me, I, like I would, I would talk to people, like some, some people would come to me and, you know, just doing all this and whether it was like work, cause some people have like work meetings or they're doing like presentations, you know, cause even like conferences went online and they would ask me, they're like, Chris, you did YouTube. How do you do it? I'm like, honestly, it took me months. Like if you, if anybody wants to have fun, go back and look at my first YouTube videos. I am so awkward. And I would, when I would like editing, I'm like, what is wrong with me? Who is this guy? Cause when I'm in front of people, I'm very animated and all that. And like, when I came on YouTube at first and there was nobody, it's just so awkward and weird. But, um, one of, one of the other topics that you talk about early on in the book is this idea that we're invisible, right? That nobody sees us. We don't really have influence. And so a little, a little about like where I come from with this, uh, when I, when I got sober in 2012, uh, I learned, you know, we're, we're telling a lot about how like self-centered we are. Right. And also my social anxiety, and this is actually something I teach others with social anxiety is social anxiety makes me think everybody is costly looking at me. Right. Like I'll be in a restaurant. There's some people over there. They start laughing. And I'm like, are they laughing at me? Right. So part of my like mental health and toning it down is like, Chris, you're not that important. Nobody's looking at you. But then I read your book and I'm like, oh crap, are people looking at me? <laughs> but you have a few like caveats in there. So, so what, what, what have you found where like, we, we think we're invisible, but how often are, cause I don't want my socially anxious fellows out there to freak out that everybody's looking at them. So what have you found in that realm? Yeah, it's definitely good to show that there's kind of both sides of the story. And I think what you're describing sounds a lot to me like the spotlight effect, which is something I talk mm. about, uh, which is by Tom Galevich and some other colleagues here at Cornell. And they basically show that when you're acutely self-conscious about something, which it sounds like, you know, you were at that time, mm -hmm. uh, like just kind of really worried that everybody's looking at you or noticing something about you mm. or something different, right? then we do think people are looking at us more than they actually are. So he has these studies where he basically had people wear a Barry Manilow t-shirt, which at the time, this is like 20 years ago or more, uh, yeah. was considered like embarrassing. Although now I feel like people would wear it and be like, ah, it's my hipster shirt, you know? Yeah, I love vintage, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but at the time, people were super self-conscious about it. And when he asked people, like, how many people do you think noticed that you're wearing a Barry Manilow t-shirt, people thought way more people would have noticed that than actually did when he asked a group of people who had just seen that person. Uh -huh. um, so when we're super self-conscious about something, fewer people are looking at us than we think, which is a nice, happy story. But then the other piece is something called the invisibility cloak illusion. Where it's yeah, basically, that's what it was. Yeah, where the, so the effect flips. Um, and actually Tom Gilvich used to call this the reverse spotlight effect. So he also mm. sort of anticipated that this wouldn't always be the case. 
And that's like when we're just going about our daily lives, then we actually, people are noticing us and, you know, potentially mimicking our behavior or, you know, noticing us in an audience and like tuning their message to us. And those are cases where we, you know, we might feel invisible, like we're blending into the scene, like we've got our headphones on and we're just walking around and no one's noticing us. And in those cases, people are actually noticing us when we're not like acutely self-conscious. So if I'm understanding you correctly, it's, it's almost like the dial being turned up all the way or not enough. So either we think everybody's looking at us or we think nobody's looking at us, but on average, in most scenarios, it's somewhere in between, right? So if I, if I am talking to a socially anxious person, Hey, there are probably some people who notice you, but it's not nearly as many people as you think. Is that, is that what I can gather from this, this kind of research? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. So it's, it is like a happy story in the end. It's like, if you are in a situation where you're hoping no one's looking at you or not as many people are looking at you, you know, you're probably in a good place. Probably not as many people are looking as, at you as you think. And if you're in a place where you're like, I just feel really invisible and like, what's my place in the world? You know, on that hand, if you're not really thinking about how many people are looking at you, actually people are noticing you and maybe like, you know, buying a pair of shoes that look like yours because I thought they were really cool. Mm-hmm. So it's like you're having this sort of, you know, wake of impact as you walk around the world. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Okay. That, that helps me and helps me be able to talk to others about this. And, and yeah, I, I only have a little bit more of your time. I have a few more questions. So one of you, you actually, you, you tell a story about this uh, in the book, um, but it's about, we think that like money will influence people more then it will, right? Like, oh, if I want to get something, I'll, you know, give them money or, you know, and uh, as a parent, I think that's also something to recognize because there are some parents where they make it very transactional, like, oh, if you do this, I'll give you something. My son, when he was younger, actually got into a bad habit of that. Like, uh, cause we, we started like paying him for like certain chores. And then he was like, oh, uh, how much money for this? I'm like, I'm like, dude, like that is just normal being a decent human being. Anyways, anyways, so money, doesn't always influence people the way we think it does, but also we're like, uh, Robert Cialdini, for example, there's this idea of reciprocity, right? So where, where is that kind of balance? Because some people will just do it for the good feeling. Other people would do it because, you know, maybe you help them out and stuff like that. But also like, I try not to keep tabs and make it, make everything so transactional. So what do you kind of found between that balance where, it's not always like, hey, I'll give you this and you give me that. But there's also the studies around reciprocity where we do give and people are more likely to give back. Where's where's that in between? Sure, there's definitely, you know, the work on reciprocity. Like if you go into a gelato store and, you know, someone and, you know, you get these free tastes, you feel like you need to reciprocate by actually buying something, right? Otherwise you feel like you're sort of indebted and you, you didn't do your job in that social exchange. So there is like a basic understanding that we should have balanced relationships. And, Mm -hmm. you know, if I do something for you, you should do something back and we shouldn't have way unbalanced relationships. Um, but there's also people tend to be more helpful and pro-social and communal than we tend to give them credit for. And so there's research showing, well, first of all, that people are, you know, almost as likely to do things like donate blood uh, for free just because they want to be helpful as if they're getting paid for it, right? Mm-hmm. If you like make sort of a campaign on a, on a college campus, offering an incentive doesn't really boost um, donations as much as we tend to think. Because when people do something like that, they're not doing it for the money, they're doing it to be helpful. Mm-hmm. And then- in our studies, we also show that, you know, another reason people do things as we already talked about is because it's so awkward to say no. So if I come up and ask you for a favor, you know, you're going to say yes, because you feel awkward. And me, you know, holding a dollar in my hand and sort of offering that to you is not going to make a huge difference. Like yeah. most likely you'll just do it. And in fact, we, we've run these studies where we've given dollars to our participants who go out and ask people to do something and hand them a dollar. And at times, like the person will just hand the dollar back and be like, I'll just do the survey yeah. for you. You know, don't worry about it. Um, but we tend to think that the money is going to make a bigger difference than it actually does. Mm-hmm. And so I like in the book, I call it like it's like Dumbo's feather, right? It's like we're holding on to this thing. Mm-hmm. We think that thing has all this power to elicit this response. Um, but in fact, you know, there's lots of other reasons people do things. 
you know, there, there's reciprocity in some situations, but that's not the only reason people do things. They also do things to be helpful. They do things because it's hard to say no. Mm. And in cases like that, offering money isn't going to really do much to, to move the needle, at least as much as we think it will. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's funny. I, I, I think it's uh, what money can't buy by Michael Sandel. But anyways, like there's some there's some situations. I don't know if this has ever come up in any of your research. Like, hey, here's a dollar or whatever. But sometimes offering money or a thing can actually offend that person, right? Like a great example that that I, I hear people use. Like if if like uh, you know Thanksgiving's coming up. If I like paid my mom, like if I went there and I paid my mom for making Thanksgiving dinner, she would like be like, what? What just happened? You know? So did, has that ever come up when you're kind of looking at this where people like get offended? Like, are you really trying to like pay me to do this thing that I should be doing just out of the kindness of my heart? I definitely, not in our research, except for the people who like will give the dollar back and be like, no, no, no. That's it's, I feel like that's their way of saying that's not what this interaction is. It's not a transactional interaction. Right. And so one of the reasons people get offended is that transactional interactions signal that this is like an exchange relationship that we're not close enough to sort of just give to one another and not keep track of all the back and forth. You know, if I'm going to pay you, it's like saying we're not as close as you might think we are. Right. And that, or that, you know, when someone does something, they're doing it for something and not out of the goodness of their heart, which someone can also be offended by, but like, you don't think I'm a good person. You think I need money for this. Um, so it's all about the symbol of that money and what it means for the relationship and what it means mm. for our interpretation of like why someone's doing what they're doing. Got it. So since we're on this topic and I have it here, one of my, one of my last questions, cause I, 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 it would be, I, I, I need to ask, okay, so you're me for a second. All right, Vanessa, you, you're Chris, you just started this podcast. You read a ton of books. You love talking with interesting authors. What, what would you say is a good strategy for me? I am, this podcast is blowing up. It's crazy. Right. But, uh, you know, I try not to think of reciprocity, even though I know about it, I try to get it out of my head, but you know, I like to, you know, read authors books and I like to, you know, uh, you know, I write, you know, reviews or like, if I see something good or something, I like to, you know, share about it, whether it's on Twitter or Instagram or whatever. Right. So I'm throwing out like reciprocity signals and everything like that. But anyways, maybe people are listening who are in like marketing or something like that. Like, is there, is, do you think there's like a good strategy that you found where I can influence more people to either A, come on, or B, maybe how can I influence audience people to come in or uh, something that's really helpful? For example, I say this in the intro and outro, share the episode. Like, hey, this episode with Vanessa was fantastic. Share it. It helps out. You know what I mean? What's, what do you think is a great way to influence people in, in my world? So I do make this distinction between like marketing context and interpersonal context. Yeah. And in, you know, in marketing people were kind of wired to distrust marketing. Uh, please. Yeah. And so there are ways to frame them, you know, that are more or less good, but for the most part, I'm most interested in sort of those interpersonal interactions. And I actually think your podcast and the way that, you know, you talk to authors and the audience is a more interpersonal thing. It doesn't feel like a marketing thing. So I don't think, I don't know, but I think, you know, a lot of authors probably come on, of course, to promote themselves, but also because, you know, you seem genuinely excited by the work and that makes them feel good. Like I'm going to talk to someone who actually read my work carefully Mm. and is excited about it. And there's more of that sort of interpersonal aspect of it and, you know, providing you know, solid content, I'd say, if you're talking about like the audience members. Mm. So I do wonder if, I think that one thing I would take, you know, I would sort of put out there is that we tend to think that people do things for more sort of self-centered or self-beneficial reasons than they often do. And it might not just be for promotion. Of course, Mm -hmm. people do, you know, promotion. They consider what podcast to go on. Like, is it worth it? Blah, blah, blah. But it's also like this person gets my work. I'm going to have a conversation with them as a person and not as like a marketing tool. And I think that there's value in that, that we, we often overlook. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And, and sometimes I I think it's just part of like my, my old addict behavior. I always want more and more and more, but everything's going really well. But I like the way you frame that because I've, I've recently found out and I don't, you're, you've been kind of doing, you know, you've popped up and done a few interviews and stuff. But I've realized that there's a lot of 
people who don't read the book of the person they're interviewing. Like, and I didn't even know that. I just figured most, you know, most of the time. So maybe that's the angle. And, and when I'm reaching out, I should do something a little bit more personalized or something I enjoyed about the book. So they're like, oh, this guy actually read it. Okay. All right. I'm going to try that and I'll get back to you. I'll get, I'll let you know how that strategy works. But, but like I said, like I, I, like I've already had 70 episodes since uh, May. So I've got a lot of people and I have a lot of people still coming on. So I'm doing better than I think I am. Anyways, I, I don't have much more of your time, Vanessa, but before we go, I want to touch on this real quick because it's such an important topic right now. Misinformation, lies, and you even talk about uh, one of my recent guests, uh, John Petricelli and bullshit, right? So a lot of people are falling for misinformation. There's a lot of uh, lies, things get spread. Um, sometimes it's involving like the media. Sometimes it's involving just your friend group. Recently, like this morning, I was watching a video about people screaming at school board meetings about uh, mass and they're showing like these BS studies. Like earlier we were talking about like social science and replication and, and people have absolutely no problem just citing the worst studies that, you know, on earth. So anyways. People need to read the book, but what, before I let you go, what should people know about how they're influenced or what factors play into how they're being influenced, whether it's by news, media, things being shared or, you know, whatever. So if people leave this podcast, they know just to keep an eye out for misinformation and bullshit. Well, one of the things that I talk about is this idea of the invisible audience, right? That when we come across like a study or we just hear something and we put it out there on social media, we tend to assume that fewer people see it than actually see it. And so what that can do is allow us to sort of just throw things into mm. the ether, right? Assuming like no one's really paying attention to it. And so we are actually part of the problem sometimes if we don't carefully vet the things we read uh, before we sort of post them. And some of us do that partly because we underestimate our influence because we think that other people are going to vet it themselves, right? If we don't vet it carefully, I'll just throw it out there. Sounds interesting. You know, what do you guys think? And now a bunch of people are reading something that we're not sure is actually accurate. And we know that people don't vet things that carefully. And so it just kind of continues on and on and on as people share. And so I'd say if we want to fight misinformation, one of the first things to do is to monitor what we ourselves put out into the world and make sure that we are kind of vetting things um, and being aware that the things that we say and do other people are, are noticing and paying attention and maybe passing along more than we actually realize. So Vanessa, would you say that your message to the audience is you have more influence than you think. <laughs> I would. I would say that. <laughs> <laughs> I just looked at so I just looked at it. And I was like, oh, this is gonna be fun. And that's a great way to end it. So yeah, your book, you have more influence than you think. It's out now, Vanessa. So let everybody know where they can find you. And like, are you are you doing like additional research? Do you have I know you just released this book? Do you have any upcoming projects? But I want people to be able to find you and see what you're working on and all the cool stuff that you're doing. So where's that at? Yeah, sure. So I, you can always go to my website, which is vanessabonds.com and bonds is B-U-H-N-S. Uh, I'm also on Twitter and Instagram on both of those. I am at prof bonds again, B-U-H-N-S. Yeah. And I'm, I've been doing some new work on what consent means. Mm. So, so far I've been so interested in compliance, like, you know, getting people to do things. And now I'm really interested in, what that means for the person who says yes. When do we feel like we just went along with something and complied? And when do we feel like we truly consented to something? And that's true. You know, we talked a little bit about me too and like the sexual domain, but it's true in so many things. When we consent to terms and conditions, Ooh. when we like click on a contract uh, or sign a contract or when we consent to like a police search. Um, oh. So there's all sorts of contexts where consent is applicable and yeah, so that's what my new research project is focused on. That, you just got me so excited. And I need, after you do some research, I need a book, maybe in a couple of years, maybe, you know, you accumulate all this, but that, that sounds good. So I will be keeping up to date with that. But yeah, but that's it. Thank you so much. I love the book. And yeah, we'll, we'll hopefully be able to do this again sometime. Thank you. This is fantastic.
All right, everybody. That was my conversation with Vanessa Bonds. She's, she is a fun person to talk to. Uh, I really enjoyed that conversation. She's a really cool person. She's very interactive on, on social media too. And like I mentioned, kind of towards the end, I just, I just fire out just requests like, Hey, you want to come on? You want to come on? You want to come on? And Vanessa, you know, she's, she's super cool because, uh, yeah, she, she chats, she'll answer questions and stuff. Don't go flooding her with your influence questions though, but make sure you're following her because like she said, she has some upcoming projects and all that. And please, please do yourself a favor and grab a copy of her book because like we discussed, it's not even just about, you know, the influence we have when we're trying to, you know, ask for something, whether it's like asking for a raise or a promotion and, you know, stuff in our everyday life. But there are very important conversations uh, about, you know, consent and things like that, which we need to have more conversations about. So make sure you grab a copy of her book. All right. But yeah. Other than that, uh, down in the description below, aside from Vanessa's uh, social media, you can also find me and my links over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. Make sure you're following me over there. And if you're new to the podcast or you haven't yet, make sure you're following or you're subscribed. And a couple easy ways, if you would like to help out the podcast that don't cost you a penny, one is to share, all right? So if you like this conversation with Vanessa, if you're like, oh, wow, I, I got some friends who could who could really, uh, you know, stand to learn about some of this stuff, share this episode on your social media, but any episode you like, make sure you share it, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, wherever. All right. The other thing you can do that helps out is head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a quick rating and review. It takes like two seconds, but all this stuff, uh, aside from like sharing and reaching new people, the algorithms really do like that. So I would appreciate it if you just took a couple seconds to do something like that. All right. But yeah, other than that, some other ways to support the podcast down below, there's a link to the rewiredsoul.com where I have written some books. If you want to check those out, mental health, addiction recovery, and there's also an affiliate link for better help online therapy. All right. That's a service that I personally use. So if you're looking for affordable online therapy with a licensed therapist, check that out. All right. So another huge thanks to Vanessa for coming on to chat about her book. Make sure you're following her and grab a copy of the book. And for all of you, thanks so much for listening. And tomorrow we have another brand new episode and it's with none other than best-selling author, returning guest, Mary Roach. Because if you didn't know, she has a brand new book out called Fuzz and she sent me a copy. I read it. It's amazing. And she came on to chat about it. So make sure you stay tuned for that conversation tomorrow. All right. So have a great rest of your day and I'll talk to you then.